Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. All right. So my next guest is Orpheus Black. He's a part spiritual therapist, part bedtime sorcerer. He's a kink performer, an author, and an all-round badass. Orpheus grew up in Venice Beach in the breakdancing scene and has found his way into merging Afro-Buddhist Taoist spirituality with sexuality and kink. I've never worked with Orpheus personally yet, but friends who have taken his power dynamic workshops say that he's the real deal. I'm delighted to have you here today, Orpheus. Thank you for joining us. Ooh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, okay so we got to go through some nuts and bolts here. Um, okay. Just to, you know, ground in, in BDSM. Give us a, a working definition of, of BDSM or your definition. So I tend to shy away from the word BDSM or the acronym BDSM because it is something that we do in kink. Kink is actually the umbrella term. Kink is defined as any deviation from what you think is normal sexual behavior, right? And I'll just say that one more time because there's a really important kind of phraseology in there where we go, it's any deviation from what you think is normal sexual behavior. One of the things that I try to do with this definition is get away from the orthodoxy of BDSM that or kink or fetish in this kind of idea that there's one true way or that you're not kinky enough or that you're not pushing the right boundaries or the right buttons or what you're doing is fake and what I do is real, right? Deviation is a gradation that each person has to kind of navigate for themselves. And so for me, teaching each person as a unique individual who is striving to have a very human experience with someone else is my pleasure. So I love taking them through kink. Thank you for that. Orpheus, why do we want deviation? Well, that's an important that's an interesting question, and this alone could probably take up the whole fabric. I know, I'm so slot. <laughs> well, here's the thing. We don't want deviation, right? It's just something inherent to the human condition. So there's three facets of the sexual psyche. There's your presentation, suppression, and repression. What we present is a very carefully constructed version of ourselves that we present to the world. Right. We present it because that's what we want to people to see. We want them to accept us. We want the widest swath of people to love us. One, because it's a survival mechanism. Right. The more we the more the herd that we can ingratiate ourselves with, the safer it is, the more plentiful it is, the more bountiful our lives will be. Right. But the other thing, too, is we always want to feel accepted. Right. Even if it's for the wrong reasons. So the deviation becomes between what we actually want and how we want to present. That is the real deviation. So some people want to be the good girl, 
right? They want society to view them as a good girl, although in the bedroom they are nasty, freaky, dirty, and they enjoy it and they love sex. And they want to have fun, but there's the daytime face and there's the nighttime face, as they say in, Je in Japan, right? So the deviation is straddling that narrative between who, how we present to the world and our authentic wants, needs, and desires. Okay. I get that. So it's, it's, we might say deviation, but in a way it's, um, maybe there's a sort of homecoming aspect to it. So yeah. we're getting under yeah. the hood of our own, what's going on. Exactly. You know, the ego, really what we're talking about is the ego, right? It's only function is to make sure that the animal that it inhabits, right? We always think about ego as outside of the body, but it's inside of the body. The ego, in order for it to survive, it has to make sure that this mechanism that we call a human body survives, right? And so part of the presentation is to ensure its prosperity, to ensure that it's going to be welcomed with others, to ensure that the herd accepts it. But there's wants that it's going on inside of here, right? Uh, Carl Jung said that shadow is anything that conflicts with our presentation. Anything that conflicts. So if you think about, if my parents only knew that I do this or that I like that, that's a conflict with your presentation and that is what we hide. When we do kink, we go inside of that deviation. We try to help people better develop language around it, step-by-step -step actions to kind of embody it, help them process the meaning of it, and then figure out what is the purpose of me engaging in this behavior and accessing this desire. True integration happens when language, action, meaning, and purpose all come together within the psyche and a person can properly curate all of them to both themselves and to it. This all feels very sort of spiritual and psychotherapeutic. It feels like you're talking my language, but of course we have such different methodology. I'd love to get really grounded in your own experience. Can you tell me about how you came into this world of kink? Sure. Um, yeah, I had a uh, girlfriend. Actually, I was in a polydynamic with two women, both of them who live in the other room's <laughs> in the back of the, the house. Uh, and one of those people decided to leave me for Dom. And I was like, okay, what is a Dom? Who's Dom? Is this his name? Is, is this a nickname, a moniker, a title, an acronym? Who is this person who is more important than me in this way? And, um, and it was just kind of bugging me and bugging me. And then she, they broke up and she came back and introduced me to this lifestyle, me and my current wife of 26 years. And we walked into our first dungeon in North Hollywood, in uh, West Hollywood and uh, pulled back the curtains, walked in. And first of all, we were the only black people there. We were also the only people wearing powder blue at a goth club. So we stood out like a sore thumb, <laughs> right? But we sat there and we watched the performances. We watched the shows. And the thing that stands out to me the most sitting there is that I didn't feel weird or out of place. I actually felt very comfortable with being in this environment. And although I never really had thoughts of sadomasochism or bondage or any of these things, 
I saw myself being able to do these things and not only be able to do these things, but being very proficient at these things. Okay. So the what pers- are these things? What, what, I have to interrupt you because I want to like, I want to get a picture. You walk into this club. I love that you're wearing the powder blue. This is very good. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> so everyone else is in black. What are they doing? Wait, wait powder blue velour. Oh. Jogging suit nice. with the visor. Right. And the and one tennis shoes to match. So Yes. Okay, you, you've earned my respect officially, so that's good. Um, yeah, and so, so we, what was going on, you know? Yeah, so when we walked in the door, uh, this was Club Blue, and this was the premier, it was called Club Dungeon at the time. This was the premier venue. This is where all the people who are luminaries now really got their start. And as we walked in this door, you know, the lights are going. It was very dark. Everybody's in this kind of industrial goth wear, and they're I remember there was this giant, like seven to eight foot cubed crucifix. And there was a woman suspended inside this cube crucifix. And standing on top of the crucifix was the person who would eventually be my become my mentor. And he has got a big, bright red mohawk, you know, lipstick, eyeliner, a long A-line skirt, high heels and, and fishnet top. And lipstick, and he's standing on the woman's neck with his high heel. And I think to myself, yeah, I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing weird about this at all. You know, <laughs> I mean, that that image sucked me right in. I'm like, oh, I didn't know it was like that. All this sign me up. You know, it's not like that anymore. Wait, wait, um, it's it's not lies. <laughs> the woman who brought me into the scene is actually standing right here. So <laughs> do we get to say hi? You want to pop her in quickly? She says hi. <laughs> okay. Hi, hi. So, uh, so yeah, so that was, that was my, my first foray into the scene and, you know, people walking people around on collars, you know, bound bodies, uh, topless women, uh, people in various stages of undress, people really giving themselves over to their desire was really what I was feeling. And that's what I wanted. I didn't realize that I'd been inhibited sexually until I went to a place that was less restrictive than the environment that I was currently going to. Yeah, I, I get that. But so let's go into the psychology of your own experience. So, you know, we're talking about being able to go into shadow and mind shadow and, you know, create more sort of freedom of expression and, and experience. So for you, what was there in the idea of being a Dom that you hadn't been able to access in your life formally? Not even understanding what that was. You know, there was no reference. I had no idea that this was even possible, that people did these things, that people enjoyed these things. I'd always been a very domineering individual in my relationships. I know what I wanted, how I wanted it, who I wanted it from. And, you know, very structured in my sexual interactions. But I didn't know that this world existed, that this was possible, that the framework of sexuality extended beyond the boundaries of what my sociocultural identity allowed for. Right. I was always the kinkiest person that I knew. And when I went to that club, I realized I was barely scratching the surface of whatever it was. We have to remember there's indoctrination and inculturation, even with uh, regards to our own sexuality, especially how black men view themselves and then how we are being viewed. 
right? So as a black male, I, I have this kind of idea of who I am sexually and what my religion permits and what my family expects and, you know, what the kind of cultural identity around sexuality is, which is still kind of repressive. But then there's also what the overarching culture says about uh, black men being hypersexual, aggressive, um, not sexy, uh, brutish, animalistic, right? And so we're always kind of tempering down some of these ideas so that we don't fit the stereotype. And in that, we're we're repressing ourselves. We almost become the overseer of our own sexuality. Any deviation, we self-check, self-correct, right? And then when we see it in other people, we shame, blame, and uh, and exile many times based on their deviation. And now I'm in a place where people are engaging in ways that I never thought of before. So that was really kind of the psychology of it. So I love what you just said about um, how we're the overseers of our sexuality. That feels so on point. Um, and I think that that's particularly the case now with, you know, now that we have so much sort of visual stimulation and sort of performance based sexual content that we're kind of, uh, receiving online, whether it's kind of the, you know, the vanilla version through whatever you're getting on, on Instagram or, or porn. Um, it feels like there's, there's so much self-consciousness around sex and sort of how do you, you know, how do you get under the hood of that into genuinely liberated experience? I mean, I suppose that's my, you know, my personal interest in, in sex is all around, you know, well, obviously joy and pleasure, but, you know, maybe more deeply liberation. Is that how you see King? Really how I see kink is a method by which one heals their relationship to power. Mm. That's really what we do. We help people find their way back to the source of their power and figure out how they disconnected from it, right? Why they want to reconnect to it and then heal that rift and then create a conduit by which they can access their power and wield it in whatever unique fashion that feels good for them so that they can produce outcomes that are beneficial to them without being detrimental to others. To me, that's what we do in kink. I get that, but there's somewhere I get caught in this, which is if we're playing these roles, like you're, you're dom all the time, right? You're always dom? Or kind not necessarily. Of. Kind of. Okay, well, well, I'm. I'm. I believe that we have, in the same way, we're both masculine and feminine. We're both dominant and submissive. And what happens is we get comfortable in one iteration, right? So that's why I don't go, oh, I'm master dominant Orpheus, because although I've never switched uh, as far as being someone's sub, I wouldn't rule it out. If I met somebody and they really brought that out of me, I'd give myself over to it. I'd be like, yeah, because surrendering to your desire is what we do. The other caveat that I would like to make is that we are not playing roles, right? What people are doing is exploring archetypal narratives that feel good to them in the moment. They're allowing these energies they're seeking expressions to manifest forward, right? Embody them and then manifest them with their partner, 
right? So it's not role play. They're more like trying on outfits that feel good to them. And they're working from within that framework because no one tries something that is not in line with their desire already. Right. If I didn't want to be a cat, I wouldn't be like, oh, let me try on this cat uniform and play and meow a little bit because it's not in line with my desire. Right. It always comes from a very real place. And so I don't call it role play or I'll make the caveat that it's role play until it becomes the role they play permanently. Well, I mean, back to the cat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of caught my imagination. Right, I like I'd it. like to be a cat. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I might not think I want to be a cat, but then I might put on that little cat outfit and I might be like, oh, I never knew I was a cat. And, you know, I mean, don't you think also desire is something that's sort of in us, but it's also, I mean, Sometimes we know what it is and sometimes we don't know what it is until we have it. And then, you know, then a new sort of uh, neural pathway is illuminated, right? Like, I'm, you know, this popped into my mind. The first time I had phone sex, this is before, you know, um, we had smartphones, <laughs> you know, when I was in, in um, university. Don't, do <laughs> no, don't tell them. Okay, weird example. Okay, whatever. Anyway, but it was, you know, it was the point is there was no video. Okay, it was just like it was an audio experience. And I knew I talked to you. What's that? I said I knew I talked to you before. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, so <laughs> very nice, very nice. Okay, so when we were having that amazing phone sex experience, it, it kind of um it felt like a revelation. I was like, oh, we can just through voice we can explore this sexual territory we can turn each other on it just felt like it illuminated a whole it's like oh there are all these other ways to have sex i wouldn't have known that without having it it sort of was something i stumbled into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so say more about that say more about that well, I'm just saying that maybe we don't know what excites us until we do it. Hmm. Well, I'm going to like, go. I don't think direction. that. I'll just one other thing on this. Like, I don't think that if if I had to say, and I haven't explored the world of kink, but if I had to say, you know, I would say I'm I'm naturally submissive. That's what I would want. But I don't really know. You know, maybe if I. And I also like to think that I'm versatile, but yeah, maybe if I got dressed up and, um, you know, was with the right person, I might be, yeah, I might discover the dom in me. It's not a, it's not a desire or a fantasy at the moment, but who knows, right? Well, I'm going to, there's so many things that were said there. (laughs) Like I don't know which one to address first. Um, Here, let me, let me give you my model, right? My example is this. A mother comes into a room and tells the child, clean this room, right? I want to see it perfect when I come back. Child does like every child on this planet does, and they stuff everything into the closet, right? That's what every kid does, right? And then they come back and they say, mom, look. And what that child is doing in that moment is presenting in a way that they feel is in line with what they think the authority figure desires. 
This is an analogy for how everyone lives their life. We're so busy presenting in a way that the authority, we think the authority figure wants us to present that we forget what we have in the closet, right? That closet to me represents the unconscious or suppression, right? So for me, the desire is one, to unhook this person from this idea that they're thinking about what other people are thinking, one. Let's just get out of that because it occupies so much of our mental uh, abilities, right? We're doing so many mental gymnastics that we're being exhausted and we're not exploring ourselves. So once we've done that, we can go into that closet and say, hmm, what do I feel comfortable with presenting? How do I want to properly curate myself? Oftentimes, people need external avatars for the things that are represented in their mental closet. An example, they have some kind of feline fetish. They don't interact with it very often. They know it's there, but they're scared to talk about it. And you know what we do usually as a society? We create things like Halloween so people have an excuse to kind of pull those things out and play with them, right? Well, kink provides that same excuse. Sex provides that same excuse. And so when you go to a Victoria's Secret or you go to a sex shop or you go to a dungeon, there's hundreds of things that are there. But what grabs your eye is what is in subconsciously locked in your closet. The thing that we gravitate towards is something that's already existing in the framework of our minds. So that being said, I think that there's lots of things that we can do. There's lots of things that we can push ourselves into, but the things that are most in line with who we are and that we really want to engage in are already there. The blueprints are already existing, <coughs> right? So, so DDLG is one of the biggest kinks that we have right now, biggest relationship types, which is daddy, dom, little girl, right? DDLG is one of the hugest and everybody does the same thing. I had no idea that I wanted to do this. And I'm like, well, let's look at your history and you'll probably see markers that you're engaging in this behavior the entire time. Right. Wait, wait, explain what daddy dom little girl is. Yeah. So DDLG is when people regress into maybe what will be archetypally known as the, the maiden space. Right. They have this childlike wonder, reverence, play, joy. They want to dress up. And what they're looking for in a partner is a loving, dominant figure who's capable of caring for them in that space and prioritizing their safety in the moment. Check, right? check, check. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. And then they yeah. and then once they can access that safe space right? They can start bringing a sexual narrative into it, maybe open hand spanking over the knee, you know, over uh, the white panties, maybe the outfits start being more reflective of that little space for them. And while they're not regressing, they're just embracing the sexual narrative of this archetype. Does that make sense? And so it's coming from a very real place. It does. I mean, it just, you know, the mother brain in me starts tweaking because I'm like, oh, sexualizing little, you know, it goes into ah, sexualizing little girls. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Well, that's that's why it's really important for people to come see and and work with coaches who are experiencing this because that that same mentality 
is what keeps people from talking about it. Yes. Right. Because it's not the same thing. You know, they're not sexual. They're not. That's why I say they're not regressing. They're not sexualizing childhood. And a dominant is not either. And coming from an arc, again, we have to think archetypally all every pattern of behavior resides in the back of in the framework of our mind, our subconscious. Everything is there from maiden, Puela, uh, mother, crone. They're all there. Right. What we're doing is opening these things up so that we can embody more of the archetypal narratives that feel good because we've locked into the ones that we've created, this artificial representation that we're presenting to the world. We're not going back and feeling that ancestral energy come up and manifest within the framework of our life, let alone our sexuality. Kink gives us the opportunity to play in those spaces, play with those frames, play with those ways of being that feel good for us in the moment. So if you, yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. I think to me, having a coach does sound like a really important part of it. I'm imagining that without that extra layer of sort of consciousness and guidance, it might be easier to get stuck in kind of trauma vortexes. Yes. Yes. And I imagine that part of the world of kink is, okay, I'm just throwing this out there. You can tell me I'm completely wrong. I'm imagining that part of the world of kink is stuck in a trauma vortex and part of the world of kink is, is about evolution. Yeah. Yes, no. I think you're right. I, I'm going to say yes to both. Right. Um, but there's an and on that. So yes. And kink is a cross section of our society any society, the world, this is just the societal subconscious, the societal shadow existing um, alongside of what we're presenting. So the last statistic, every other person identifies as kinky in the United States, one of one. And I'm willing to admit, I mean, I'm willing to, to bet that it probably everybody, and these are just come down to who's willing to admit it and who's not. Right. So what we're really saying is some people are comfortable with exploring their shadow and some people are not. Some people have been traumatized around their the shadowy desires. Right. Some people have been indoctrinated to never play in those spaces. Some people have been forced or even brainwashed into not engaging with their sexuality authentically. And so they're going to be in a chronic state of denial on a regular basis. Right. If you just look at this, everybody's engaging in some form of deviation, some form, somewhere, somehow, because our sexuality, kink being outside of what we consider normal, means that there's a normal. And everybody's doing something that they don't think is normal, whether it's anal, whether it's getting on top, whether it's uh, being spanked. Whether it's being spanked before, because being spanked before sex and being spanked during sex and being spanked after sex, all different things, right? All different societal connotations, okay? Every feeling that comes up around that has to be integrated, talked about. Um, Processes have to be enacted. Meanings have to be extrapolated. Purposes have to be defined Every time we start trying to process something that feels good to us, that we feel is outside the norm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So obviously not everyone has uh, the, the means to work with a, with a coach. So if, if you're a couple exploring this world um, without guidance, do you have any tips? If you're a couple exploring this world without guidance, yeah, the first thing I would say is really look at your relationship style because most people are in a monopolistic relationship. They think they're in a monogamous relationship, but they're really in a monopolistic relationship. And what does that mean? A monopolistic relationship happens when one person controls demand, right, and the satiation of others' desires. To me, that is how most people run. A person might say, I really need a, um, a BJ every other day in order for me to feel comfortable, in order for me to feel grounded, to release the tension that I know to feel just to exist in the world. And that person might say, no, not only am I not going to do it, you can't have anybody else do it for you. You can't go outside of the relationship to do anything with anyone and, and I'm not going to do it. That is a monopoly. When you say you can't date, you can't talk to, you can't, you can't, you can't. One person is governing the entirety of the relationship. You will never be able to explore who you are in a monopoly. Okay? So the first thing I would say is you have to move into an open relationship. What does an open relationship mean from this paradigm? A relationship that's open to talking about enacting mutually beneficial um, changes that feel good to both people. I didn't say enacting, but open to talking about mutually beneficial changes to the relationship that benefit both people. Once you can move your relationship into that space, everything becomes possible. But if you can't talk freely, emote freely, express freely, you're never going to do anything. You're just spinning your heels and probably making your relationship worse. So bringing about that change is really important. Safety, in my opinion, is the number one aphrodisiac for women who are raised female at birth. In order for them to truly feel like they can embrace their sexuality, they need to be able to feel safe enough to talk about it. Right? So that is the second thing. How do I create safe spaces for this conversation to happen? If you can do that, then you're ready to do anything. The rest is just guidance. Yeah, I mean, safety is absolutely it. Safety is the bee's knees. I mean, this is, is I think, across the board. <laughs> the bee's you know? knees. <laughs> you are too cute. Uh, <laughs> you are just too cute. Um, so yeah, but it, you know, safety is such a, I, I find it such a kind of reverby space, you know, because it's something I keep coming back to in my own work. Um, you know, trying to actually increase my sense of safety in the world, which is such a kind of core thing. Um, and I think surpasses the sexual, you know, I think it's a, it's sexual, it's relational, it's psychological, it's spiritual, it's body-based, you know, it's, it's many things. Um, it's historical and it's also part of being a, a human, you know, so, so, you know, contending with fear 
in general feels like such a such a big thing um to me anyway so and i you know as a psychotherapist i'm always dealing with issues of safety and and i i generate safety that's one of the things that i do i create bubbles of safety probably one of the reasons i you know i value my work is because i value safety it's not something i've always felt have access to but it still remains somewhat a mystery to me and can we talk a bit more deeply about that like how do we generate a felt sense of safety first of all i love this conversation this is like my favorite conversation um that is submission so i i'm going to ask you slash your uh your clientele or the listeners a question have you ever made the statement in my body i might I'm not feeling in my body at the moment or what's coming up for me in my body, or I'm trying to work within the framework of my body. If you've asked yourself, or if you've made that statement or asked yourself that question, here's what I'm going to ask you. How old were you when you separated from your body? Because you are your body, right? Or when did you start protecting yourself? When did you start protecting your body? When was when did it become a possession that you had to protect from others? Right? For me, this is the number one indication that at some point in time, a trauma happened where we separated so that if someone grabbed my the booty, the breast, the, the thing, they, they could say, it happened to my body. It didn't happen to me. For me, when safety is there, it, a person's able to create this unification where they and their body become one and they can start processing the desire. Most of my clients will say, you know, what? I was probably about 12 or when I started growing breasts or, you know, or the attractions start happening. People started kind of just play grabbing, play touching, whatever. It stopped being me is start being my body. Mm. We need to facilitate that reunification and that only happens in safe places. Okay. For me, we create a safe uh, space, place, time, and a sacrifice. Those four things have to happen in order for a person to feel comfortable with performing singularity. Wait, what's the sacrifice? If I say, you know what? I know that you could be doing a podcast, working with clients, you know, working out, doing yoga, but you chose this moment to be here with me. And I really appreciate your sacrifice. Right? That feels good. That feels like, oh, you see me. All of me, you understand that, yeah, I could be doing some work. I could be working on my website. I could be posting videos. I could be watching YouTube. I could be doing all those things right now, but I've chosen to be here with you. This is my choice. And I appreciate your choice because those things are sacrifices. No ritual happens without sacrifice. And that's what every intimate moment should be. Sex is a ritual. And it will bring about change, creativity. The energies will flow, merge, mingle, and we will create something special in this moment. And it's a result of your sacrifice that helps breathe life into this thing that we've done. 
to me, when a person can feel completely seen, understood, that singularity can take place where I and body can fuse back into one and they feel safe enough to start exploring, not just getting into it, but start exploring their sexual narrative. Yeah, you know, what I'm thinking of as you're talking is how uh, it's kind of unavoidable that that safety is a is a relational construct. I, we can't really feel, I mean, I think there are things that we can do for ourselves, you know, in our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our body and intentionality and meditation and all of this kind of stuff. I think there are things we can do, but this this safety that we're talking about feels like, you know, it comes from relationship. <laughs> the unsafety comes from relationship and relatedness and the the repair comes from relatedness. And, you know, that's scary too because yeah. other people, right? Other people, unknown quantities. We're all these vulnerable, shifting things. We're not solid. We're not rocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Within the framework of safety, I find that the archetype of protector emerges more in female-bodied individuals than in men, right? Meaning? Because the, the protector, the protector of this body never turns off. They never stop protecting themselves, right? From going to work, to, to being in traffic, to going to the gas station, to always on high alert. I always have to protect me. When people talk about stepping into submission, what they're saying is, I just want to put protector down for a little while. Yeah. And it's hard to do that. There was a guy in, uh, during the Attica riots, they gave everybody an opportunity to say something. And this guy said, you know, for 50 years, I've woken up and picked up this broom. And now I don't know how to let go of it. Right? He's just, I, I get it and I do this thing. I get it and I do this thing. From the time I'm conscious to the time I go to sleep, I do this thing. And that's what the protector archetype is for most female-bodied individuals or people who are raised female at birth. So for me, understanding that this is a necessity, that they, it can't be put down forever, but maybe there can be a little staycation in the bedroom, maybe a little in the living room. Right. Maybe there's a designated space in the house where that person can just be open and vulnerable and sexy or not sexy or wear makeup or not wear makeup. Whatever feels good, whatever putting that down looks like. I, as a dominant, want to take on that responsibility to hold that space, to be their champion. Right. To to give them that moment, even if it's just a few hours a day. Oh my God, can we replicate you? I think we need some more good things. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I mean, what you're just saying just speaks so closely to me and made me feel really sad thinking about the amount of protection that, you know, we as women have to just, you know, keep close, just walking down the street. It's just a real thing. Um, And... Yes, the idea of having designated spaces to put it down just sounds so, so wonderful. And again, takes me back to therapy, which in some ways is, is also similar, right? That people come to me to kind of, you know, get naked on a, you know, 
uh, <laughs> the, the level of their interior life to be vulnerable, to, to cry, to show their shakiness. And, you know, in, in that, in those, in that role play, I suppose, I'm the one who's, you know, I'm more, I guess I'm the mother, right? I say, it's okay. It's okay. You know, I, I, um, I allow it for them. I allow them to, to put it down and I know how precious that is. Um, and it's something I want for myself. And I suppose through my eyes, I just feel like surely everyone on the planet deeply wants to be submissive. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. That's why I say dominance and submission are not exclusive. They exist together. Every dominant wants to feel like there's a safe space for them to put it down for a minute. And every, every submissive is capable of picking it up. Right. Wait, it's like, wait. what I'm just getting a bit confused. Cause I know that you, I mean, you, you said you're not, you, you'd be open to not being dumb, but you are very much dumb. So where do you, what does that look like for you? How do you put it down? How do you go into that? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I have to let people take care of me. Right. Like, and I don't mean like serving coffee or something like that, but you know, you, we have tri- trials and tribulations. We have tragedy. And sometimes we need to be open and vulnerable and allow people to step in there. You know, when you're the person that fixes everything for everyone else, people, some people forget that you actually need care, patience, tenderness, touch, time. Right. And I have to be willing to receive that. You know, if someone has the courage, if someone has the desire to give you what you want, we have to have the courage to let them. And sometimes in our dominance, we forget that. We forget that we're not just an island unto ourselves or like, oh, I don't need anything. I'm a big, tough dom. No, sometimes we have to let go. Sometimes we have to cry. Sometimes we have to feel vulnerable. Sometimes we're just a blothering mess and that person has to pick us up. Or sometimes they have to to, to take over until you can get back in the, in the game, right? Because we, we have medical issues. We have uh, tragedies, car accidents, all these things. So for me, understanding uh, that it's a dichotomy, as we say in the Bantu uh, kind of phenomenology, they'll say, he who wants to be king must first learn how to serve. You know, but we also kind of say that, uh, you know, you have to know how to be a good subordinate in order to be a good leader, right? They're not mutually exclusive. And so sometimes I just need to be taken care of, you know, just sometimes you just need to have somebody check in on you, make sure you're okay. You know, take over the reins for a little bit because you're down. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Um, Orpheus, you're opening my heart. I thought we were just going to have like a sexy little kinky convo. And now I'm (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. This guy's making me emotional. This is tough. Thank you. I hope hope I'm not bringing the the fans down. You know, they're like, no, this is beautiful. This is, this is perfect. Um, And I feel like I'm starting to kind of, get more of an answer on one of my big questions, you know, which is related to how do we find safety, but it's how do you, how do we surrender? So actually I was talking to an advisor recently and they said something that I've heard before, which is, well, you just have to 
surrender. You know, in this situation, you just have to surrender. And I've been kind of laughing with myself about this because, you know, sometimes it feels like somebody's saying, well, you just have to relax, you know, you just have to submit, you just have to surrender. And you're just like, how the fuck do I do this? And, you know, in, in terms of my conversation with myself, I feel like, you know, it's like saying to a dog, you know, just like drop that bone, but it doesn't work, you know, with a human, you just go, just surrender, fucking surrender right, right now. And you're like, but right. I can't. So but as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, maybe that's the function of the ritual is it's helping you kind of uh, harness your intentionality and create a space that's designated for that because otherwise it's too abstract, isn't it? Exactly. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Right. There's intentionality associated with everything we do that's why it has to be framed through the the narrative of ritual right picking up putting down all part of ritual right here's the thing about submission and surrender surrender is something you do once right let's say uh an army comes to your town they say hey surrender you surrender once it's over they integrate it's it's all done you only have to surrender once right it's like incremental. I do it. Okay, I'll surrender. Okay, I'll surrender. Submission is a way of viewing your existence through the framework of non-resistance. There's no reason to push back. I don't have to push back. I do not have to resist. I do not have to confront. I can allow or not, right? I can move around. I can circumvent. I can flow freely within the framework of anything. It's a, it's a real opening. It's the fluid movement of what it is that we do. So I like to tell people to make it more concrete. Submission is comprised of two things, letting go and not holding on, right? Letting go of anything that's not serving you and not holding on to anything that's holding you back. In this moment, the next Wait, moment- Wait, we've got to go slower with this because I actually made a note on this because I- was reading your book that the Anza or philosophy of submission and mm. yeah. And I, I wrote this line down that I read half of submission is letting go. The other half is not holding on and it caught my imagination, but I still don't quite understand how the two things are different. Okay. Well, like, let's say we're going into an intimate time and, and I'm going to come up behind you and remove the purple dress and expose the shoulder and then the first thing that comes up is uh, somebody I didn't like did that at work. And now I'm in that moment. Uh. Well, that's not serving this moment. I have to let go. And I know we haven't gone to the process, but that's the first thing. Right. Or we're, we're going through this intimate space and you're holding on to feelings and emotions of an argument that we had two weeks ago. Right. Still holding on. It's not serving you. Letting go and not holding on is really important. Here's a way to make it even more concrete. Here's how most people engage with surrender. When, it, when it's done wrong, it produces baggage. Let's say you and I are having a conversation and I get angry. I say, you know what? I'm letting go of this conversation and I walk out the door, but I'm still holding on to the feelings and emotion. I just created baggage. 
That's what baggage is. When you take something, the emotions away and it's stored within you. Right. And it's always ready to be popped open at any moment in time. That's why we can have an argument about something different. And I referenced last week, the day before. Right. That's baggage. I can carry it into another relationship. That's baggage. When you let go, but are still holding on, you're only done half of submission. Both have to happen. I'm letting go of this. I'm letting go of the feelings. I'm not holding on to anything. I'm not taking anything away from this moment. Go with God. I'm walking out the door. Boom. Right? That's performing submission. Okay? So for me, we have to go into each moment. When we talk about submission, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of being. It's a way of moving through the world. Surrendering to this moment. Letting go and not holding on. Right? How many people get into arguments at their job with their boss and then take that emotion home and take it out on their family, take it out on their dog, take it out on their, on the walls in their home, right? Argue with people because they're carrying that feeling home. They, they're still holding on to it. It doesn't serve you. You have to let go. You have to stop holding on. Okay. So that's kind of the overall philosophy of submission. Okay. So I think I'm getting it. I'm going to try. And <laughs> <this>. uh, <laughs> All right. So how does this relate to slavery? Is slavery submission, Woo! extreme submission? That's a, that's a whole different one. <laughs> I know. I mean, we need three podcasts because I, I, I know we don't have that much time. I want to address slavery and I want to address pain. Can we do it? Okay. Yeah. Well, let's try it. Okay. Yeah. So here's a, here's a simple codex for this, right? Bottom is when you give over your body to someone to use your physical form as a conduit by which they access their sexuality, right? I'm giving I'm surrendering my body to you, right? Submission is where I let go of all those things that are blocking me mentally and emotionally, psychologically, I could give both my body and my mind over to you. Slavery is where I can give my entire being over to you, my body, my heart, my mind, etc. over to you, right? I like to say kind of, you know, jokingly that Submissive submit for the sake of surrendering while a slave submits to you. It is something about you that they want to devote their life to. It's something about you that they want to give themselves over to. There's something about you. It's you specific. It is user specific. I know people who have never been in kink and meet somebody and give themselves over 100% dedicated fully. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, we used to use this term sprung. Oh, she sprung on you. She'll do anything for you, right? And I used to have a girl, she'd make up my bed, clean up my room, make me dinner, do all these things. And I was young. I never, I don't know why she would do it, but she devoted herself to me. It's a soul contract that happens subconsciously. You are the owner operator of this precious thing. And until you truly understand what it is that they're giving to you, you can't appreciate it. You can't appreciate 
what it is in the moment. And so we use that term slave. And again, this doesn't reference antebellum slavery or chattel slavery or, or any of the history uh, of this. This is an emotional servitude, a, a, something that we all wish that someone would love us to that extent. That's what slavery is in this context. Is it for life, slavery? Can be. It can be. I, I know people who, <laughs> it makes me emotional every time, but I know people who are in MS, we call them MS master slave dynamics, who were together until one of them passed away. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a life contract with another person where they devote themselves to you and you devote yourself to them. And when you commit to someone like that, where they become the, the focus of your idolatry, where they become the, the, the sole purpose for existing in that moment, it is really hard to lose them. So sometimes they make it, you know, sometimes they break up. Sometimes they, it's till death do you part. Yeah, I make the joke that I hired to retire. Like I, I tried not to go into relationships that I couldn't see myself living with for the rest of my life. Right. To create that intention that this person is going to be here forever. Right. It's just easier for me to adjust the world to that concept than it is for me to kind of play it inch by inch. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that in itself is a very deep archetypal uh kind of construct the idea of yeah devotion and and being with someone forever and of course that's kind of why so many people get seduced into marriage you know it's just a it's just a you know a deeply romantic idea and it speaks to our need for security I mean um if you if you can get there if you can get into that kind of commitment I think it, it makes a lot of sense and it seems like you've managed to balance commitment and freedom so Hats off to you, Orpheus. Thank you. Thank you. Very cool. Very cool. Um, okay, so it, it, I know it's a huge can of worms, I'm sure, but but um, pain. I'm a pain-averse person, very sensitive to physical pain. The idea of doing something that involves that is kind of intriguing to me because I'm, I wonder, could I increase my pain tolerance? Would I even want to? But um uh, help me understand the role of pay, play, uh, sorry, the role of pain in this, these kind of dynamics. Okay. Well, let's start with this idea that there's no such thing as pain within the framework of this lifestyle. Let's just, let's just say there's no pain, right? What we experience is sensation to an extreme that for some is tolerable and for others is intolerable. Right. No one really is going into this framework of I'm going to inflict pain. Why? Because a masochist converts the sensations that we would associate with pain into sexual pleasure. So are they experiencing pain? No. Right. Most people. On a psychophysical level. Whatever traumas happen, they will often shift it 
under the umbrella of sexuality, sexual desire, turn on, because it's just easier to process it that way. The, I think the primal self is easier to latch onto that and convert it for them. What happens where people experience pain and they're put off by it is it happens too fast. It's sharp, it's intense, right? No one in King loves stubbing their toe at three in the morning. That doesn't feel good, right? No one enjoys tripping and falling, right? That's pain, right? So what we're doing is different than pain. We're playing with sensations. We're playing with tolerances. We're playing with patience. We're playing with transformation, right? That's happening in the body, energetically and physically and psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. We're hitting this kind of stratified layer of self on every level. So maybe your body can take a little more, but maybe your emotions can't. Right? Maybe your body and emotions can take a certain amount, but maybe your mind can't. Right? Maybe and so on and so on and so forth and so forth. And we're playing with this field of sensation to see what feels good and what really causes turn on because sometimes what feels good and what causes turn on are not the same thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, because turn on is, is both physical and psychological. Yes. Yeah. So, so forgive my lack of knowledge in this, but so, uh, knife play, flogging i can't think of another example right now um are they all kind of different versions of the same thing of sort of experimenting with this range of sensation yeah um i was gonna say i thought you were say they're all doing pain none of those things are painful at all like if it, if any of those things are painful you did something wrong you know what i mean like None of them are, they look like, oh my God, he's cutting her. That's going to feel horrible. Oh, she's on fire. Oh my God. You know, oh, listen to that sound. It's a magic trick. There's always a secret to each and every one. If it were really painful, we wouldn't have so many people doing it. Right? Give you an example. When I take a knife and I put it to the tip of it to your hand, Guess what? Your intention flows all the way to the point of that knife where that point is kind of coming into contact with your skin. And you know what you're not doing? Thinking about where you parked. If, if dinner's ready, uh, I take out the kids. I do. It shifts your entire mentality to one fixed point. And then when I move it, your mind stays with it. You drop away from the constructed reality or the consistent reality in the world, and you are focused on one point. People strive for this in meditation all the time. And I can take one pointed object and take a person out of their reality like that. So again, is that pain we're playing, we're playing with? No, right? It's, again, a psychosensual exploration that we're dealing with that removes you from your reality. So it's a great way, let's say if my wife comes home and she's all frantic and I want her to drop into this moment, maybe we can make a space where we can do some knife play, 
run the knife along her hand, around along the inside of her arm, lightly. You know, nothing, no pressure, no blood, no marks. Just a way of kind of dropping out of this kind of consensus reality that's occupying her mind. Would would there be a ritual around that? Would you say, um, you know, we're going to do some knife play, let's meet in the living room and you'll dress up and light candles or do you just go straight in? Well, it depends on the person, but for yeah. me, yeah. my checklist is space, place, time, sacrifice. Remember, it's like oh, yeah. space as an environment, uh, like, again, Michel Foucault's heterotopic spaces, right? So it's a space within a place that helps shape their identity in the moment. So if it's going to be sensual, we know we do stuff sensual, usually in the bedroom. If we do something social, it's going to be in the living room. I'm always thinking about what in the environment is going to help them evo- help evoke the you that I'm looking for. Right. So if it's candles and that feels good, if it's a, a, a spiritual sense, I can I can do that. If it's just about sex or if it's dirty, if we're accessing something, what space is going to help produce or help elicit a being that is most conducive to this moment? Yeah, this feels very like uh, working with psychedelics as well. And we know these these energies are quite, quite similar. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Well, remember- Orpheus. Yes, you go. <laughs> I was just going to say, remember, <laughs> we are playing with psychedelics because we're playing with hormones. Because it, since different sensations release different hormones in the body, right? It releases a different Molotov cocktail of emotions, sensations. Different things are being turned on and turned off, activated in the moment. And the idea of mastery is to be able to play the person like a perfect instrument, right? Where you can take your hand and guide them, mold them, play them, you know, listen to them, their moans, their cries, their whimpers, their moans in a way that produces the outcome that you're looking for, right? And sometimes you need the point of a knife and sometimes you need the warmth of fire. Sometimes you need the tension of the ropes, right? But it's all about the mastery of that instrument. Gosh, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm kind of down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I got a feeling this isn't going to be our last conversation. Um, Orpheus, can you tell us where we can find you? Yes, thank you for asking. You can find me at OrpheusBlack.com. That's O-R-P-H-E-U-S-B-L-A-C-K. Dot com, And you can also join our Mighty Networks group, which is a support group for people who are undergoing spiritual kink training in various stages. And it's a wonderful thing. Or you can just find Orpheus Black on any social media, Twitter, uh, Instagram or Facebook. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>